all of the working models we have within the Christian tradition for thinking about Christ's atonement are all informed by social, political, economic models uh, that were available to people at the time that made sense. Fiona does an incredible job of talking about Western and American society and our sort of fixation with retribution, our fixation with incarceration, and how those kind of issues really might inform how we think about justice, how we think about mercy, uh, how we think about what God expects of us, and, and, and how that informs atonement. And I think that is really powerful to think about, as Eric already mentioned, right? She wants to turn our attention more to the healing aspects of the atonement, uh, the ways that atonement uh, can bring us back into full relationship and to into freedom, rather than thinking about extremely sort of punishing, harsh, harsh God that needs to be satisfied or appeased in some way. Jesus landed to live righteously. And it is time for another episode of the Cultural Hall. And, uh, you know, excited to uh, make a new friend today and also uh, welcome back an old friend. Uh, I'll introduce the new friend first, uh, Deidre Green. She is here with us, excited to get to know more about you and who you are and uh, why you're hanging out with the likes of our second guest, who is Eric <laughs> Huntsman. Thanks for being back here with us, Eric. Sure. Now, you were last with us when you were uh, doing a thing. We let you take over the Cultural Hall's Facebook page uh, around Easter time. Oh, and that's you, right. Trevor Hatch and I did that, right. Yeah, you and Trevor Hatch did uh, posts each day talking about the Easter celebration. So I uh, want to say, of course, thanks for that and the great content that you put out that way. Uh, but also thanks for being willing to come back and chat with us. Now, uh, Deidre, we, we've already heard Eric go on and on all about who he is. <laughs> I would love to know who you are. Tell me uh, tell me what you do, how you, uh, you came to this project, introduce what this project is, and then I'll ask questions as I interrupt you along the way. Sure, thanks. Yeah, so I'm currently Assistant Professor of Latter-day Saint Mormon Studies at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. Um, I've been here for about a year and a half uh, now, trying to build a new program in Mormon Studies here. Uh, as far as the project goes, um, Brian Birch, who was a mentor uh, of mine, a professor of mine, actually, when I started out in my PhD program at Claremont, uh, approached me while I was still a PhD student and suggested that I co-edit a volume uh, on Latter-day Saint Perspectives on Atonement. And so this project really started um, nearly 15 years ago. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it went through many twists and turns um, and many kind of different iterations. And um, I was just thrilled that Eric and I got connected um, several years ago uh, to kind of resume the project and bring it to fruition. Uh, so yeah, so it's really satisfying to see it all come together and to come together in such a beautiful way. I mean, I couldn't be more thrilled with each of the contributions. I think all of our authors did an excellent job. Um, it's got the most gorgeous cover I could have ever dreamed of. Mm -hmm. uh, Richards, always have to love Richards. Right, yeah. Yeah, huge thanks to to Kirk for uh, permissions to use his art uh, on our cover. So, yeah, so it's really fun to see this come together because it was uh, such a labor of love for for so long. 
So Deidre, I love that you were like, uh, you know, I, I do this. And then you quickly launched into your project as if we weren't <laughs> wanting to find out more about you. Oh, where, okay. where are you from? Are you a member of the church? Give me some, give me some of that information. Sure. So I grew up uh, near the Monterey Bay in California. So not too far where I am now, from where I am now. Um, I grew up in the church, uh, went to BYU as an undergraduate, uh, studied with David Paulson, um, as a philosophy major at BYU, which was really life-changing for me in terms of really uh, seeing someone grapple with really difficult issues uh, in the restored gospel and and to do so with a lot of confidence and openness uh, to take a more intellectual approach to things. Um, so that really shaped me. But uh, when I graduated from BYU at 20, I was planning to be an epidemiologist. Um, it's fun okay. that I no longer have to explain what that is to people, but prior to the pandemic, I always had to explain to people what that was. Uh, but as a missionary in South Carolina, I just had a strong experience uh, that let me know that I needed to pursue religious studies. Um, and I was surprised to find that my mission president and my parents uh, were very supportive of that. So. Uh, after serving a mission in South Carolina, I went to Yale Divinity School and then did a PhD at Claremont um, while while Claremont was just building its program in Mormon studies. So I got to be uh, part of that as a student. Um, to the extent that you're comfortable, I would be curious to know kind of what that shaping uh, incident or incidents was that made you go, yeah, maybe more than just the, you know, this 18 months of teaching people here, maybe this is a calling or a, a, a life, a life, uh, you know, trajectory. You know, I wish I could say there was like some kind of like deep explanation, but it really just kind of blindsided me. Uh, I just felt really strongly like this was what I was meant to do. Um, and it, you know, it's been a radically different path than anything I envisioned for my life. I really wanted to be doing humanitarian health work and research for the most disadvantaged people. That was my vision for my life. And I've spent my life in the ivory tower with super privileged people, uh, intellectualizing, um, about a lot of these sort of issues. Um, so it, it's been vastly different than what I envisioned, but also has felt like the right thing. And, it's been nice also to be in the ivory tower and be in those privileged places and try to bring the conversation back to sort of real world uh, application and what the implications of various beliefs, doctrines, ideas are for uh, people who are on the margins um, and what this looks like in people's everyday life. And I think the atonement is one of those areas that we often don't think about how um our sort of models or doctrines or uh, ways that we envision it uh, affect everyday lives and affect people on the margins differently, maybe than people who are more privileged. And so that's been something that I've been really passionate uh, about thinking about. So I, well, gotta I can ask... just jump in real quick. Richie. Okay. Yeah. All right, Eric, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> more strokes. I mean, I'm glad she made that connection because she is anything but ivory tower. <laughs> long-standing long interest in marginalized communities and her compassion that she was interested in doing in terms of public health never stopped. And so she is just doing what she has always done in terms of looking to other people. My encounters with DG were kind of glancing and numerous before she asked me to do this. She was adjuncting a couple of times for BYU educa religious education and just did such an amazing job of teaching Book of Mormon. She was at the Maxwell Institute as a fellow for a long time. And I think it was that period, wasn't it, when you were... Rachel worked for you. My daughter was yeah, a research right. assistant one semester. And my daughter, you know, I, I did all I could to raise a strong, confident feminist 
daughter. <laughs> what she really needed was female models, not dad. And even though it was just a semester, um, Deidre made such a huge impact on my daughter. Deidre did a lot of work in Kierkegaard and and just wonderful stuff. So I, I remember I gave a copy of your book to Rachel for Christmas that next year, Deidre. But I, Deidre and I just kept crossing paths. We used to see each other quite frequently in the Provo Temple, if I can say that. Yeah, and of course. Someone who lives, he, she lives the restored gospel. And so she's not... She did not just bring her intellectual acumen to this project. I just want to say that. And I, as I noticed, noted in the in the introduction acknowledgement, she's a careful reader, a very gifted writer, but above all, she's a thoughtful theologian. And she really encouraged me and our contributors to just think a little bit more carefully and deeply about this most important topic of the restored gospel, the atonement of Jesus Christ. And we've sort of danced around it a little bit, but we should maybe just uh, tell folks, and obviously there will be a link to all the things that we talk about here in this episode, especially if you want to purchase the book. It's uh, out by the University of Illinois Press, uh, and people can click the link to be able to purchase it. It's called Latter-day Saint Perspectives on uh, on Atonement. And I have to ask you, Deidre, because what it sounded like as you explained how this, the genesis of this project is that someone gave you sort of an assignment and you're like, okay, I guess I will. And now here we are 15 years <laughs> later and it's become, become what it is. Did I understand that right? Or sort of like a challenge, like you should do this. And you're like, can't get it out of my brain. Can't get it out of my brain. Yeah, so originally um, this was envisioned as part of a series uh, by um, an LDS publisher. And so their kind of vision for this series is that there would be kind of a senior scholar editor and the younger scholar, like, you know, I was a PhD student at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was kind of paired with someone um, that uh, that person ended up deciding to leave the church. And so it didn't make sense for them from their perspective anymore to continue with the project. Uh, and and then by the time we were kind of ready to bring it to fruition, we thought initially uh, once Eric and I were working together on this, uh, then that publisher also decided that they didn't want to publish uh, anthologies of this nature anymore and they weren't mm -hmm. gonna continue with the series. So, uh, so then we decided to uh, to shop it to University of Illinois Press, and we're really thrilled, right, that it can be in a venue that uh, will have a wider reach, you know, beyond just the Latter Day Saint community. So I really feel like, in so many ways, um, it turned out for the best. Um, you know, Eric has so much expertise in biblical studies and had so many connections um, there with, you know, different authors and different uh, things to include. And so even though it was a very long process, I really feel like it turned out, you know, the way that it needed to be. And I think it's something that's really special and can be much more useful, um, even though it took so, so long to make it what it is. You know, even though it was frustrating as we kind of bounced around, you know, we lost our first publisher and then we said, well, maybe Religious Studies Center at BYU or maybe the Maxwell Institute. And we were having a hard time. We knew this was an important project. We were just having a hard time finding a venue. And mm -hmm. um, Spencer Fluman, who is the director of, of Maxwell for a long time, I think he was the one who suggested University of Illinois, wasn't it, DJ, or did you already have that in I mind? Don't I don't remember that. I think I did, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> but but for a lot of a lot of your listeners um, who may not be as familiar with the University of Illinois Press, University of Illinois is kind of the epicenter of the academic study of Mormonism for a mm -hmm. long time. And, you know, I, because of my particular, I guess, objectives in publishing, for me, it's always been a matter of trying to bring more biblical scholarship to a wide Latter-day Saint audience. I had been working mostly with Latter-day Saint publishers and religious sure. studies 
BYU. And but what was just really brilliant um, about Deidre and or the Lord, whoever guided this final decision and outcome of moving the University of Illinois Press, is it allowed us to do something that a lot of Latter-day Saint readers don't get to see, which is a real academic treatment. And it doesn't mean it's faithless. But it means that we were following all the canons of scholarship. We had outside reviewers and editors, and um, we actually had to work with our authors very carefully because a lot of them, like me, were more familiar with writing for a, a solely Latter-day Saint audience. But what this allowed us to do was have two audiences in mind. On the one hand, serious scholars of religious studies and Mormon studies in particular, many of whom are outside of the church, and we want them to better understand our understanding of the atonement and what is unique and challenging and what the great you know, opportunities are in restoration theology, but also a lot of Latter-day Saints who maybe have a little bit more of an intellectual bent and would like to see more of that. And so it allowed us to shape each of the essays, which I think could have, could have appeared in different forms in a number of venues. Sure. But we were just really, really pleased with how it turned out in this case. I mean, there were some things that were interesting as editors. We had to go through and make sure that, you know, references to Latter-day Saint culture and Latter-day Saint institutions and positions, you know, th that those were explained. And we had sure. to get away from some Mormon speak, for instance. You know, one thing, and I'm a little obsessive compulsive that I kept doing is I kept putting birth and death dates next to every figure, you know, because, you know, people outside the church would not know who this apostle from 1936 was, right? Sure. Sure. Or even why that was significant. So I, I think it, I think it did something unique in that sense. So uh, I, I want to get into uh, how the project is sort of laid out, uh, why there are particular uh, writers are included, and if there were any ones that weren't. And I want to get into all that. We're going to do that in the second block. But before we, before we get away from sort of this, uh, this opening part, I do have a question. It, it doesn't have anything to do with the book, but it is a question that I hope that you guys will kind of open up uh, personally about this. You mentioned that you had, and I can imagine that you've had more than just this one individual that you've known throughout your lives who they've been a member of the church. And I don't need to know who this is. That's not what this question is. Um, but how, when you, when you sort of exist in the same realm with these other people and they're like, can't do it anymore... How does that impact you all the way around? Because I would think, and let and let me not uh, you know put too much on you guys, but I would think, well, wait, I'm sort of like this person. Is there something I'm missing? Is there something that that I didn't get or that they got or or now like they're? And so I would love it if each of you guys uh, would would answer that question when you have someone, a colleague, a friend, uh, a collaborator who says. I'm out. I can't do this anymore. How does that impact you? And how do you make your way through it? So whoever would like to field that question first. Deidre, you're senior. Eric, will you go for it? <laughs> no, no, Deidre, I'm talking. I actually am excited to answer this question, but my my intuition is telling me you should you should speak first. So I think a little bit more. <laughs> okay. I will kind of set up a playing field, but I'm really interested in what Deidre has to say as well on this. I just didn't want to be guilty of kind of being a mansplainer, Deidre. So I... <laughs> Um, you know, in biblical studies, uh, a lot of what I've done has not just been in ancient scripture, which is the Department of Religious Education, where I'm permanently based, but a lot of work I've done the Kennedy Center with ancient Egyptian studies, etc., in my former career in classics. I've done the academic study of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And it is not unusual, not just for Latter-day Saints, but for believers, whether they be evangelical Christians or Catholics or mainstream Protestants, a lot of times as they get deeply into religious studies and biblical studies in particular, there is oftentimes a danger of 
not just faith losses or faith crises. I, I like the term that um, Thomas McConkie uses better about faith transitions, right? Sure. That there are changes, and sometimes those do end up with losing faith. But so what I always found myself doing, for instance, when I was ancient Asian studies coordinators, which preparing students to go off to, you know, real biblical studies programs is not trying to inoculate them because that makes it sound like, you know, thought and criticism is a disease, but just to prepare them with, with more resources for understanding texts and history and theology from a, from a critical perspective, which is what we do as scholars. And criticism doesn't always mean negative, right? It means evaluating and judging, sure, sure. trying to understand and, and so it was always a matter of trying to present my students, not with problems, but what I would always say, here's a really interesting approach to the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, when you get to grad school, you'll hear this, this, and this. And so let's understand it, you know? Right. And so that's something I've always kind of had in mind, even before I got involved a lot more in, in terms of as a teacher and as a father and as a friend of watching people struggling with testimonies. You know, for me, it's always been a matter of the truth can stand on its own. I don't really have a, a an apologetic bone in my my body. I, I've just always thought this is true and important and meaningful to me, and I'm just going to share it. And I've always thought if we can provide people with information and knowledge, and in the process, share our own convictions, I'm willing to let the Holy Ghost be the inoculator. I don't think I need to do it, or we need to have an institution that does it, you know, Uh Anyway, so that's the kind of thing I have always had in my background as my students and my students have gone on to become colleagues. Um, you know, I have two children and, and one because of his life situation. These aren't issues for Sam. He he's on the autism spectrum. But my daughter is just such a thoughtful person and she's really a product of this generation. Mm -hmm. And so I in fact, when we were kind of honoring or dedicating this book to different people in our lives um, in the acknowledgments, I actually dedicate to my daughter because, you know, my son, Sam, I always had to just get back to basic gospel things, which I had kind of lost in all the details over the years of teaching and writing. But my daughter challenged me and still does challenge me. And I just I just want her to know, wow, this is still so rich. And no matter where you may be at this particular time or at some point in the future, I don't want you to ever give up on the beauty, which is the inheritance of our, uh, our inheritance in the gospel, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. It's rich. It's deep. It doesn't have to be, you know, I, I hate to say this, but it doesn't have to be black and white. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't mean that there's shades of gray. I think instead, wow, it's a rainbow. It's full of wonderful colors. And when we get into the meat of the book in the second part of this, this visit together, I think we'll talk about different atonement models and how rich it is to not always just have one answer or one model. Yeah. To just acknowledge that this is for me and for Deidre and for other believers, the most important and richest part of our, our spiritual heritage. And it's because of its complexity and its depth and its potential that it deserves perspectives. I mean, that is the title, Latter-day Saint Perspectives on Atonement. Sure. Sorry, right, Deidre. I'm curious. All right. You yeah. find out about that or someone else and then like, how do you, how do you process your way through it? What, what, uh, what, what does it do to you? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. You know, I will say that I think um, for me, for the most part, I'm really grateful when people are kind of open and honest about their struggles and when people leave what their reasons for leaving are. I think that part of being really honest and I will say something like evolved in our faith is uh, recognizing that there are compelling reasons why people leave. 
Um, there are difficulties with history, with theology. You know, people might feel a lack of integrity around, you know, social views and uh, different issues like that. And I think for me, it's helpful to be confronted with that and to really have to reflect on why do I stay? Yeah. You know, what are my reasons for staying? I can empathize with these issues that people are struggling with. I understand where they're coming from and, and that these are vaccine uh, difficult issues. And and what are my reasons for staying? And so I think that um, for me, it can actually in a lot of a lot of ways be enriching. And I think it's also really helpful for shaping my work as a theologian. When I see why people are disinvesting in the church, it helps me to think about how can I lift up some aspect of our scripture or our doctrine that people might be missing, that people have overlooked, that people haven't been taught, and how how might this help people? How can we uncover this a little bit more? Sometimes I use the word excavation, right? When mm -hmm. I think about scripture study. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wrote a book a few years ago on uh, on the book of Jacob, um, which was a theological treatment on the book of Jacob. And for me, that book really grew out of teaching Book of Mormon uh, at BYU to Gen Zers. And mm -hmm. suddenly I was in this position of reading the Book of Mormon completely differently, because I was you know, really attuned to the issues that I thought would be of interest uh, to to young people today. And, um, you know, what are the issues they're facing? What are their challenges? What are their values? And how can I connect those to the scripture? And I really saw the Book of Mormon in a whole new light teaching it that way. And I've come to love it and appreciate it so much more. And so something I recommend to people, uh, if they're getting kind of dull in their scripture study or, or need something, uh, to motivate them is to just think about what are what's who's the person you know or a group of people you know that's struggling. Uh, what are what are their issues? What are their difficulties? What are their challenges in the gospel? Can you read the scripture through that lens? Can you pray mm -hmm. to have charity for for them and to empathize with them and to understand and see something new? Um, and so, to me, you know, it also really impels me as a theologian that I think the restored gospel is is so rich i want i want everyone <laughs> to see uh to see what's there you know i i think it's absolutely profound but i think we often talk about it or teach it in really perfunctory superficial ways that um that really are disconnected from what's actually there and from the times that we're actually living in uh, and so it actually like really impels me to think more deeply about how can we articulate what's here? How can we draw connections for people that will help them uh, want to stay and find the fulfillment, find the sort of integrity uh, that they're looking for? Uh, because I believe it's there. And I, and I think we've just maybe done a disservice or not been careful enough to, to make that more apparent to people. What a rich exercise to be able to to read through the scriptures and try and place yourself in another person's position and to what they might be able to glean and how you might be able to help them. That's incredible. I love it. Let's uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back in the second block, we're going to talk about the layout of this book, not necessarily the actually like printing layout, more of what we can uh, expect if we're reading this, uh, who should be reading it, and, uh, and uh, also some of the who's who that we might read from in the book. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. BestDJinUtah.com. You're right. It's a new ad. What? Well, it's been an entire season since I've recorded a BestDJinUtah.com ad. 
And well, the wedding season coming to an end at this point, but not really because what happens now is everyone who's going to get married in 2024 reaches out and says, Richie, is it possible? Do you still have this date? And I tell them, yes, hopefully. And then we get you booked. We'd love to be able to work with you. Uh, travel all along the Intermountain West. Some people call it the Jello Belt. Uh, you can go to bestdjinutah.com to request a quote. You can find us on any of the social medias at Best DJ in Utah, and uh, we can answer any questions. Affordable, yes. Over 400 five-star reviews, yes. Highest rated in the state of Utah, uh-huh, go on. It's bestdjinutah.com, and, and I'll give you a little hint. It, it also helps me to be able to do this, like financially support the cultural hall through that and you get something in return hi friends dan the laptop man here from pc laptops you can get a brand new pc laptops desktop and they start at only 29 dollars a month and it comes with a lifetime warranty just check us out at pclaptops.com that's pclaptops.com here in the second block do not forget that you can become a patreon saint of the cultural hall uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall where for as little as $5 a month, you get to know, know that you are helping uh, the cultural hall continue. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you also get to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group where all the Patreon saints are hanging out. We would love for you to be a part of that. It's patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. You also get to see the videos as soon as they are done. We upload them right there. So you may, in some cases, get episodes months early than other folks who just wait for them to come out on the podcast feed. So, uh, Deidre and Eric, I would love to know uh, th this book. We've sort of referenced it. It's uh, it's it's not a series of lectures. It's a series of essays, and there's a bunch of perspectives. Tell me, I'm picking up this book, and I'm looking at it. What, what am I getting? Deidre, do you want me to start, and you can pick up? Sure, yeah. So Deidre had already been working on this project and already reached out to a number of potential contributors before she brought me on board. But as we sat down, we, we thought, well, let's try to harness our respective strengths. Now, she's a theologian and she's a thoughtful person and she's a writer. Mm -hmm. I am what is called an exegete. I use historical and linguistic tools to understand text. And um, I don't make any, you know, pretensions of being a theologian. I always say I'm a practitioner more than a theologian. I just know how I live this. But so we decided to kind of divide up the book. I mean, we both read every word of every essay and had input on, on both sections of the book, but we decided to have one of us be the lead in each of the two sections. And so my section was called Scriptural Historical Foundations, and then hers is called Theological Explorations, and I'll let her speak to that in a moment. And, and so what, of course, as an exegete, what I was most interested in is what is in our text and how we understood those texts. Mm -hmm. And so we just tried to find contributors who had expertise in each of these texts, and we arranged them chronologically, not necessarily chronologically as, has, as they were written, but chronologically as Latter-day Saint community re received them. So we have a chapter on Latter-day Saints and the Old Testament. I wrote the chapter on Latter-day Saints and the New Testament. We have two chapters on Book of Mormon. We have one phenomenal chapter on the Doctrine and Covenants. That's the scriptural part, although it's also historical. But the historical part, you know, so much of our theology and our understanding of the atonement is shaped by discourse, how it's been talked about and particularly how it's been preached. Well, the idea of trying to go through almost 200 years of conference talks was just unmanageable. Even if we had three or four essays, that wouldn't have worked. Sure. So we just punted 
except as individual authors, you know, referred to different leaders and how they understood passages. We punted on conference talks, but we decided to do something else because we really, and this goes with Deidre's inclination towards marginalized groups and, and my attempt to not be a Neanderthal white male. Um, we wanted to make sure there were a lot of female voices in this. And so, I mean, one of our real coups was getting Jenny Reader to do a chapter for us. Um, she co-edited the book, um, Women at the Pulpit, for instance, and sure. she's a great historian. And she wrote the final essay in that first section, Inscriptional Historical Foundations, which was 19th century Latter-day Saint women and atonement. And mm. she went through archival sources and journals and letters and really laid out not only how did a number of, you know, some well-known, some not so well-known female figures in the 19th century understand atonement, but how they experienced and lived it. And so that was something we thought would be getting new information out there. So that that's kind of how that section is set up. And each of us in our essays tried to treat our text, or in Jenny's case, her archives, um, you know, systematically and the way we do it as exegetes. But we would still bring in how that has been taught in Latter-day Saint discourse and our own understandings. We notice it's Latter-day Saint perspectives. You know, we're not apostles, prophets, and revelators, and we can't declare doctrine. But we can look at text and we can chronicle historically how those texts have been understood and taught. So that was my section of the book. All right, Deidre, before I get to you, I will say Jenny Reader, a huge fan of the Cultural Hall and a dear friend of mine. So I uh, I know just how amazing she is. And uh, and I'm sure she's a little giddy about that shout out whenever she gets mentioned. She's like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. And also, how cool is that that I get to mention in the thing? So Jenny, that was not prepared beforehand. I had no idea that Eric was going to say it. Deidre, let's talk about the other part. All right. Well, let me just say also, I am a big fan um, of Jenny's work, especially in this volume. It's just a phenomenal piece. So we're absolutely thrilled to have her uh, in this. Um, yeah. So the second half of the book is theological approaches. And so it's largely uh, kind of taking tools from contemporary theology, thinking about how to reread our scripture uh, kind of towards, you know, what I was speaking about earlier, maybe finding new ways to read our texts. Uh, through different lenses, looking for different, um, with different emphases than we have in the past, uh, largely concerned with thinking about atonement on a more communal, collective level, um, concerned with thinking about atonement as something that's not primarily about violence or primarily about retribution, uh, which are some of the really big issues in contemporary theology around atonement. Um, you know, as a, as a graduate student in theology, uh, for me, one of the most compelling issues that I studied and ended up uh, writing my dissertation on were thinking about feminist and womanist critiques uh, of atonement that were largely focused around the fact that uh, if we really take th these teachings to their logical conclusion, we're really engendering a culture of violence um, and a culture in which women can be seen as sort of imitating Christ even when they're being abused. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it might also engender a sort of masochism in people where we just see all suffering as inherently redemptive and good. And so those are some of the dangers that I was especially attuned to and that a lot of our authors uh, in this volume, especially in the second half, are attuned to. So how do we think um, about atonement in the 21st century in ways that um, don't kind of valorize violence or suffering 
uh, how, how can we rethink our, our most fundamental imagery about atonement in ways that are more edifying um, and ways that also, again, like I said before, uh, help us think about atonement, not as just one individual's relationship to Christ or relationship to God, but how does the atonement apply to institutions and uh, societies, to churches, yeah. uh, to church communities? Um, yeah, so... So, so then a question that I have for you guys, and and uh, I would imagine that this occurred. I'm sure hoping that there's the answer to this question. Um, you are able to read from these these great essays. Is that what we're calling them? We're going to call them essays from folks? Yeah, sure. We have chapters, essays. Essays, uh, chapters. Uh, I would love to know each of you individually a, uh, a something that gave you a different paradigm about the atonement or something where you got done reading the thing as you're prepping to put it into this book. You know, you'd had the conversation beforehand, but you got done, you know, listening or reading or whatever the thing is kind of consuming that person's content and went, Oh, I am different now because of, I'd love to know like which chapter or who the birth the author was. And then I would love to know what, what that different perspective is. Uh, and I would love whoever would like to go first to share that. Uh, maybe we can just lay one more piece of groundwork before okay. we share a chapter that changed us or influenced our thinking on this. Um, this is a pretty dense introduction. <laughs> this went through, we wrote it together and it took several drafts, but we were really trying to lay out the basic issues and why we wanted both scholars outside the church and members of the church to read this. Mm-hmm. No, and and so we just kind of laid out the fact that Latter-day Saints approached atonement with two different backgrounds. You know, the first Latter-day Saints were New England Protestants. And so they started with the first two chapters of this book, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as the third chapter lays out, um, Ariel Bibi-Lawton laid out how patristic thinkers, so 1800 years of thought after the Bible, and all of that was in the background. That's how, you know, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor first understood not just the Bible, but when they started reading the Book of Mormon, right? So we have this common background with other Christians. We don't always understand how much of what we believe or understand about the entombment is inherited and what was actually new and restored. And then we have restoration scripture and restoration teaching. So our introduction tries to lay out those kind of issues. Mm-hmm. One of the things we were eager to do, and, and Deidre's already articulated a bit about how there are other models, and it's important to have other models besides, you know, bloody sacrifice or violent models. Um, but we know a lot of Latter-day Saints weren't familiar with nonviolent models of atonement. Mm-hmm. But we were also aware that there are a lot of models straight from the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, that don't get as much airtime, right? Okay. And, and so there are some models of the atonement that we all know well from the teachings of, say, Boyd Packer and, and Gordon Hinckley. So President Packer had that, or Elder Packer, when he did it, that famous talk about the mediator, right, who paid the debt. Mm-hmm. And in his Christmas message one year, I think it was in 1990, um, President Hinckley talked about, you know, he took a licking for me. And, and these were very much part of that uh, reformed Protestant inheritance of what we call penal substitution. Mm-hmm. But the... Book of Mormon, as Fiona Givens in her essay points out, so full of healing models, right? And, you know, overcoming that awful monster sin and death is is what uh, theologians call the Christus victor, that Christ triumphed over these cosmic powers. And, And so we just wanted to lay these out. 
Now, when we first were looking at this book, before we realized how many good contributors we would be have and how long their essays would be, we had this idea of actually reprinting some really important Latter-day Saint works on this. Oh, interesting. So, for instance, Jean England wrote a very famous um, essay, I think it was in 1966, that they might not suffer, yeah. which was a moral theory of the atonement. And then Lauren Hansen kind of critiqued that and expanded it and wrote something about the moral atonement. Two other fellows, Dennis Potter and Jacob Morgan, that J.B. Hawes references a lot. So we thought, wow, we're going to have some reprints of stuff that's great thinking in past 40 years that a lot of Latter-day Saints don't know. Sure. And sure. religious scholars may not know, but the book is too long. <laughs> so we ended up kind of summarizing some of those things in the introduction. So I just wanted you and your listeners to kind of sure. understand that this project could have been, you know, what was it, what does it say at the end of John 21? The whole world would not be big enough to pile <laughs> all the books on Larry Saint Perspectives on it. So let me just do my um today's every day might be another choice, but today's choice for an essay that just really stunned me. It's JB Haas's essay on atonement from the Doctrine and Covenants. J.B. Haas is a great church historian and a real expert in the Doctrine and Covenants. And, you know, he did, it wasn't that this was new to me. He just articulated it better than I ever had before. He still embraces a substitution model, but it's not a penal substitution or a vicarious suffering for guilt or punishment kind of model. He just was able to articulate better than I ever have in almost 30 years of teaching, was better able to articulate what I guess we would call a consequential substitution. Mm. This is in line with Latter-day Saints' embrace of the idea that there's eternal law and law has consequences. And it's not, you know, because the problem always was for me, no matter how much I taught, you know, Alma talking to his son, Corianton, about justice and mercy, who is demanding the suffering, right? I mean, is there some kind of giant Shylock in the sky, you know, demanding his pound of flesh and his court of blood? And how can a loving father do that? And, you know, one of the arguments against penal substitution was it made too angry of a God or too powerful of a Satan if we're trying to somehow buy him off, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what JB does in his chapter is he really lays out there are natural consequences to actions, even actions which aren't intentional. And what Jesus is doing is he's absorbing the effects and the consequences of those actions. So like I said, it was something I always kind of knew and more or less taught, but not very well. But in his chapter, he just articulates it really well. And he's, you know, he uses an example of going out jeeping, which kind of shows you what a cool guy JB is. But, you know, <laughs> he's like six foot four and plays basketball, but he also jeeps. But, you know, it talks about this jeeper, you know, and there's a mind collapse and, you know, they're just things that happen if a rule is broken. And so anyway, I was really grateful for the way he carefully explicated some latter saint, saint teachings about law and eternity and progression, um, largely drawn upon the doctrine of covenant. So, so that's, uh, and I feel guilty because I immediately I'm thinking about all the other chapters in my section. That sure, so it, doesn't, awesome. it doesn't mean that that's your very favorite. I would just right. ask it's you just one. one that, that you did a, a really good job, better job than I have done um, at explaining that aspect of restoration theology. All right, Deidre. Yeah, I want to add to, uh, if, if memory serves, I believe in the essay, uh, J.B. credits his wife with the jeeping uh, analogy and metaphor. So uh, so shout out to J.B.'s wife for being so cool, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I'd like, uh, just like Eric, I mean, I could choose any of these essays. Um, I would like to really highlight Fiona Gibbons' essay and 
you know, one of the really uh, great gifts of, of womanist theology in terms of rethinking atonement is the work of Dolores Williams, who was one of the real pioneers of womanist theology in the 20th century. And something that her work does is to point out that really all of the working models we have within the Christian tradition for thinking about Christ's atonement are all informed uh, by uh, sort of social, political, economic models uh, that were available to people at the time that made sense. Um, Fiona does an incredible job of talking about uh, Western and American society and our sort of fixation with retribution, our fixation with incarceration, and how uh, those kind of issues really might inform how we think about justice, how we think about mercy, uh, how we think about what God expects of us, and 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 how that. Uh, informs atonement. And I think that is really powerful uh, to think about, as Eric already mentioned, right, she wants to turn our attention more to the healing aspects of the atonement, uh, the ways that atonement uh, can bring us back into uh, full relationship and to into freedom, um, rather than thinking about sort of um, extremely sort of punishing um, harsh, harsh God that needs to be satisfied or appeased in some way. Um, and so I think it's really masterful to constantly come back to the atonement and think what are meaningful ways to think about this core doctrine of ours within the sort of metaphors um, and social values and political values that we have today? How are the values that we have maybe adversely affecting the way we think about the atonement, and uh, which Fiona shows really beautifully, and how can we kind of choose other other metaphors and other models that help us, um, for one, to really be open to the to the truth of atonement, to the deep uh, divine love, right, that motivates atonement, and that is like welcoming to us, right, that wants to heal us rather than punish us. Um, but I think also just to think about what is efficacious for us as believers, as practitioners, uh, to think about when we think about atonement. And, and I think with all Christian theology and maybe atonement most of all, we sometimes don't spend enough time thinking about what is a really useful way to teach this doctrine, to explain mm. this doctrine, to apply this doctrine. We sometimes are very cut and dry. Uh, without thinking about all of the sort of psychological implications or how uh, certain ways of teaching and modeling things like the atonement can affect people in different social locations, right? How it might affect people on the margins differently from uh, people in positions of privilege. And so I think she gives us a really beautiful example of how we might start to think more generatively and more creatively um, and open ourselves up to to different possibilities, different ways that might be more efficacious, that might uh, help us to really engage with the atonement better and use it, which is the point, right? The point of, a, of atonement is that it's a gift that we receive. And we need to be really uh, thoughtful and intentional about uh, theorizing it and teaching it in a way uh, that really encourages people to receive that gift and to apply it. Do you, do you suppose that this book is more for people that are trying to find a greater depth of their connection to the Savior and our Heavenly Father through the atonement? Or it, would it be if there's someone that is like, I'm just, this atonement thing, everyone always bears testimony of it. it. You know, I have a testimony of it, I guess, but I don't know that I really fully understand it. Is it more 
for the 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 former or the latter as far as you know who who is who is the audience that you're going through within the church is it those that are familiar or those that just need uh, maybe a little bit more either of you guys can or or if it's both or or neither or maybe yeah, I'm way out I mean, of left field yeah I think it's really I would say it's really for everyone I mean I'm a theologian so I'm biased I think we should all be reflecting on these issues all of the time sure but you know I think you know within the church there are there are phrases and concepts that we refer to a lot. You know, atonement is one of them. Agency is another. Oh I can list a whole bunch, right? We hear these terms all the time. We use them all the time. But we're not necessarily really stopping to reflect and think, what do I really understand about this? Um, how would I explain this to someone else? Uh, what are the reasons for X, Y, and Z? And all of that you know, has implications in how we live with it, how we practice it, how we receive it. And so I think this, I think everyone should be reflecting on the atonement more. I think for maybe for people who are struggling with different questions or difficulties, this could give, you know, some different possibilities. I think for people who aren't maybe struggling or reflecting on it enough, this might help them to appreciate uh, what they have even more to see kind of the the depth of reflection, um, the sort of multifaceted ways that we can think about atonement. Um, and again, you know, I think we always need to be mindful of, even if I understand something and I'm kind of satisfied with my own understanding, in the lay church, we're always responsible to minister to other people, to teach other people. And so it could be the case, you know, that someone maybe doesn't have a lot of questions about the atonement, but they might encounter something in this text that will help them to teach a Sunday school class better or help a struggling youth more uh, to, to understanding something in a different way. And so I think it's really uh, useful for everyone. Yeah. I'm biased. I edited the thing, but <laughs> continue to stress this idea of perspectives and atonement models and keeping mm -hmm. plural. At the end of our introduction, we actually cite Amulek from Alma 34, I think it's verse 10, where he talks about the atonement being infinite and eternal. And, you know, the boilerplate way we do that is it has no boundaries. It's past, present, future. It has no <laughs> physical limits. It goes to throughout universes. And But we thought all that was... All of which we affirm. All of which Eric All of which we affirm. <laughs> sure. But we thought, but. what a beautiful way of also saying, because the atonement is infinite, which means with mortal minds, we can't fully understand it. It has so much potential and there's so many ways of understanding it and i mean reality is we never you know write off penal substitution i mean scripture is just too clear on that but to me and you know president nelson's been really good about this just kind of like he wants to stress the correct name of the church all the time um he wants us to say the atonement of jesus christ not just say the atonement is this kind of you know inanimate object out in the ether that this kind of vending machine in the sky that if you put in the right right number of coins of obedience repentance and faith you get the salvation it's the fact that this being and, and we actually not even though we say for university of illinois press audiences that this is for religious studies scholars and for latter-day saints of intellectual bent we do say for people inside particularly believers this is about our experience how do we experience Jesus Christ and how does he transform, heal, change, save, redeem us? And so I just, there's nothing more important to talk about than this. And I think even for people who have solid testimonies of the atonement of Jesus Christ and they understand justice and mercy, to kind of say to them, hey, guess what? That great testimony you have, there's so much more you can be thinking about. Right. 
know, and it's it's kind of like I often say to students, um, you know, if you're going to read the same four books of scripture over and over again on a four year cycle and you live to be 70 or 80, I hope you find other ways to appreciate. And as Deidre says, excavate those texts than the way you did when you were 22, you know. Yeah. And it's the same thing about it. I often tell my students, I want you to have a lifelong love affair with sacred scripture. That, you know, it's exciting to meet it just like, you know, and, and marriages and other relationships go up and down and they wax and wane. But because you love that other person, you, you're there to see what's new. Sure. And if we love Jesus Christ and we love what he did for us, why would we want to understand and appreciate and talk about it and think about it and write about it? and struggle about and and ask questions about as much as possible. What, what I really love about the, you know, we've uh, emphasized and re-emphasized the idea of perspectives is that so much I like, yeah, yeah, that particular one didn't ring so much to me. And then the next one I can just be enraptured with, just, oh my gosh, I love it so much. And then I can come back to the other one and go, you know what, because of some of the things that I got from that other one that I really love, or, you know, something has sort of happened within my life that gives me a different perspective, I can then come and be able to connect with that that I wasn't able to do before. And we find that with the scriptures and patriarchal blessings and all the things, but that we're able to have those, uh, those, those ways, those, um, perspectives to be able to to grow from each of those because you know one won't hit like it does for another person and then you know maybe they'll come back and read it and be like oh now i get it i always find that with any of the givens work i always have to like really ramp up my brain a lot and then i'm like now i can get into it and then i read like a couple of paragraphs and then i come back and go i'll, I'll that'll register with me at some point and then i can get into it some more and they've been pretty nice uh, as we've chatted about that kind of stuff. Um, they've been here in the cultural hall before too. And they're like, slow down if we're, con or tell us to slow down if we're confusing you. And I go, yes, <laughs> let's go back to what you said at the very beginning. Uh, I want to take a break again. Uh, when we come back, there's three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you and uh, anything else I think of. We'll wrap this up in just a minute in the third block of the cultural hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can always send us an email, contact at theculturalhall.com. If you like this episode, you have just recently read a book and you're like, man, you need to talk to the authors about this book or have you ever done an episode about? You can send all of those emails, contact at theculturalhall.com. Uh, if you're recommending a guest, it's always great if you know that guest. Uh, that makes the connection a little bit easier. So I'm not just, you know, sort of blind dialing them. But if that's all what I have to do, I'm certainly willing to do that. Contact at theculturalhall.com. So uh, I, I would be curious. Uh, you mentioned that you at, at the initial um, thought about this, maybe you were going to include some uh, discourses or texts from the past and be able to have them printed. And that would be a thing. And that was because of the length of the book, not able to be possible. Uh, is there anything else that got sort of, I'm sure you edited things out and for a length of time had to be edited, but are there different perspectives or um, things that you're like, yeah, that would be great. 
but it's just not going to make it in this one or we'll never get this thing done. And then maybe one of those things that uh, you're like, oh, I hope that there could be a project or have an explanation of that perspective or a furtherance or a volume two. Either one of you guys want to field that or both of you guys field that question. Uh, I mean, I'll say this definitely is not intended to be a comprehensive volume, just as Eric was commenting, you know, quoting Alma 34, that we consider the the atonement to be infinite and eternal and to be reflecting on it uh, infinitely and eternally. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really am hoping that this volume will be uh, a springboard, you know, uh, I'm not provocative in a negative way, but provocative in terms of uh, helping people to just stimulate their own thinking and their own ideas about atonement. So I hope that that this is just kind of a first step uh, in getting more literature and more scholarly reflection uh, on on the atonement within the restored gospel going. So there are a number, a number of different directions that uh, we can and need to go in. I mean, ideally, this would be a series, right? And and other editors would pick up the gauntlet. And so, for instance, for me, from a textual perspective, I mean, although Ben Spackman did great with the Old Testament section, I hope I did okay with the New Testament. I mentioned JB did great with the Doctrine and Covenants, but it would be nice to have a whole volume on Latter-day Saints in the Old Testament in Christology. I know there is a project going on with Book of Mormon Christology in my field, New Testament studies, I mean, there could be a whole volume on each book of scripture. Mm -hmm. I already mentioned how Latter-day Saint discourse could be, you know, lots of essays. You could go by period, you could go by approaches. Sure. Um, but we, we, to be honest, that was an easy decision to make, not just because of the volume of material in general conference talks. They get lots of airtime and, yeah. and they get repeated and they get cited. And, and we wanted to bring things to the fore. So I, I would like to see series of these things going on. Um, and, you know, the different people contributed in Deidre's section on theological applications. I mean, no one can get enough Adam Miller. You right. know? And she mentioned modestly what she did with the theolo brief theological institution introduction to, to the book of Jacob. But, you know, Maxwell Institute had a whole series like that. Well, not brief. It'd be nice to have big, chunky, meaty theological introductions to each book of the Book of Mormon. Sure. So, you know, that's the thing is there can never be enough. Sure. Sure. All right. Well, uh, we've come to the end. Uh, and Deidre, I don't know that you know this. Eric does because he's done this before. But there's three questions that we ask everyone who steps to the cultural hall, even though I have asked them of Eric before, uh, because they can change. I will ask them of both of you at this time. The first question is, is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? Yeah, I currently serve in the Young Women's Presidency in the Berkeley Ward. How do you like it? I love it. I yeah. absolutely adore it. Yeah, I spent New Year's Day hanging out with my young women, including one of our former young women who's home from BYU. And yeah, I absolutely adore it. What are you doing, Eric? I know you were doing the Jerusalem Center. Is that your calling? But then you're well, also Jerusalem in the Jerusalem Center was a professional appointment. But on paper, I am still technically the executive secretary of the Jerusalem District. But since I'm here during the duration of the conflict, I'm not really functioning in that. I was fortunate enough to resume... Um, Two of my great favorite callings. I resumed as an ordinance work at the Provo Temple until its closing in February, and the choir invited me back. Tabernacle choir invited me back to sing with them for the month or months I'm home. So those are the only thing I'm missing is gospel doctrine teacher, right? So those are my three favorite callings: serving in the temple, singing in the choir, teaching the scriptures. I have to ask you, just as an aside, uh, as someone who has served and uh, worked inside of the Provo Temple with it changing, are you a, are you an old design or a new design fan? <laughs> it gets real right now. <laughs> 
And there's so no I wrong said, answers. They're not going to take away the recommend. I just am curious. It's fine. <laughs> I was That's home. What you think. <laughs> I was back at home leave for reason, tax purposes in August. So I went to the temple a couple of times and walked through every room and said my goodbyes and was very tearful because I thought, oh, goodbye, pro temple that I have been going to since 1984. I'm going to miss you. I love your imagery of the pillar by night and the pillar by the cloud by day. And now I and I thought, but at least I won't have to be here to watch the Wrecking Ball in February. And yeah. I guess I will be now. So I'm sure the new temple will be beautiful. I mean, I have looked at its schematics and its artist renditions. But yes, I love the current Provo Temple. Yeah. And I loved the I loved even more the old Provo Temple when the spire was gold. Yeah. So, so there I'm on paper. I'm officially an old <laughs> temple. I think it's so funny, just kind of as an aside, I think it's so funny when people feel like they can't talk their preferences because then they feel like it's something that's against the church. It's like, no, I, I can like the way that church buildings used to be built with stained glass and still believe that, that you know, the prophet is called of God and it teaches, you know what I'm saying? It's it's funny the way that some people will splice those things and be like, no, I just have to like it. And it's like, you don't you don't have to. You can want what the old design was or or whatever the thing may be. The second question, Deidre, uh, has nothing to do with the Provo Temple at all. Uh, but if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Or make one up. <laughs> We've had some creative answers over the years of people that have made up callings. There's nothing off limits as far as either either way you go on that question. Yeah, I'm going to be really boring and just say I actually love being a gospel doctrine teacher, especially during Old Testament years. That's probably one of the best callings I've ever had, and I've had it multiple times. So I have a soft, soft place in my heart for that. All right, Eric, to you, pick yeah, a call. That I'm back at, um, I would say gospel doctrine as well. The last question, uh, we ask you to interpret it however you would like, but the question remains... And we're going to make Eric go first. That way you get the last word, Deidre. Uh, the, the question is, what is your favorite part of your faith? Jesus Christ. Sorry, plain and simple. Uh, uh, you know, from previous visits we've had, I one of the things that moved me from classics to ancient scripture is that I wanted to get in the New Testament Gospels. Uh, one of the reasons I love serving and teaching and ministering in the Holy Land is I love being near or above or close to where he was. Uh, one of the reasons my popularizing books have been on the Christmas and Easter seasons is I, I think there's nothing more marvelous than the gift he was at his birth, the sacrifice he was at his death, and the hope he was in his resurrection. I know that sounds very simple compared to all the things we've been talking about, but it's why I'm a Latter-day Saint. It's because, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of, you know, ecumenism and holy envy, but the reason I'm a Latter-day Saint is because this is where I came to know the living Jesus Christ. All right, Deidre, it's you. All right. Um, I will say um, specifically for me, it's coming to know Jesus Christ through the Book of Mormon. Um, I think we have such a special, um, incredible gift within the Book of Mormon. And I don't know that we always appreciate uh, what is really there in terms of how we can come to know the Savior, how we can come to uh, organize societies and communities in a way uh, that reflects a testimony of Christ. And to have a text also gives us so many models of the myriad ways that societies go wrong yeah. uh, when they lose that vision. Um, I think it's just such a profound gift. Um, and I'm so grateful for the way I've come to know him better um, and to feel that he is really a part of my life, specifically through that text. 
Yeah. Beautifully said, both of you guys. The name of the book is Latter-day Saint Perspectives on Atonement. A huge thanks to uh, Heather over at University of Illinois Press who helped us to be able to coordinate this interview. And especially thankful that uh, Eric was given permission to be able to speak with me yet again. <laughs> we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety in the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show.